Really glad to be with you this morning. My name is Wilson. I'm the pastoral resident here, one of the pastors here at Incarnation. Um, we are continuing this short series that we're doing this summer that is uh, focused on this theme that runs through the Bible, that God has meals with people. And he uses meal language, the language of eating and drinking, to talk about how he communes with people. Why meals? Why is this such an important theme that, that stretches all the way throughout the Bible? Um, well, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, as Keith showed us, um, the Christian faith is not just a set of ideas that you believe, that you assent to. It's actually not of central importance that you believe right things about God. It is of central importance that you know God, which of course entails believing right things about him, right? But as, as you all know, from any sort of real friendship, a real friendship is not built on knowing things about somebody else, but it's about knowing another person. Lovers do not know things about each other. They know each other by way of intimacy. And the wonderful news is that God has worked ferociously over centuries and in every single generation to have this type of intimate knowing relationship with his people. And again and again in the Bible, God does this in the context of meals. The Christian faith is about nothing less than deep, intimate experience with the real, true God. And nothing captures presence better than a meal. It's impossible to have a meal and not be present with the, with the people that you're with, right? Um, I rehash all of this because this week I want to start looking at the meal that picks up all the meal language of the Bible and captures it in one place. Uh, the meal that everything else was leading to. This is the meal that is Jesus and Zacchaeus' meal together again. It's the feast in the garden of love, like we read in Song of Solomon. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choices fruits. Eat, eat friends, drink, be drunk with love. This is the meal that's echoed in the language of Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Do you know what meal that is? It's this one. It's this table that we come to week in and week out. This table is the place where all the communion over meals language of the Bible gets caught up. And this meal is essential to our spiritual health, and it's essential to our ability to be fruitful in the many callings to which we have been called. Being a student, being a good neighbor, working your job, parenting kids. How? Well, it's at this table that we encounter the real presence of Christ. At this table, we encounter the real presence of Christ. And I wanna show you that today. Um, and I want to explore a couple of things that, that that means for us. So first, at this table, we encounter the real presence of Christ, and that invites a decision. That invites of us a decision. Okay, we see this played out in our gospel reading. We're going to use a couple of the, the readings uh, from today. John 6, if you've got a Bible, uh, I invite you to turn there now. Um, in John 6... In John 6, a crowd of people are face-to-face -face with Jesus as he is unveiling who he is 
and as he is uh, giving them the words of eternal life, all right? It's a major moment, and as Jesus talks to these people, they are growing more and more skeptical by the minute. Why? Why is the conversation moving this way? Um, well, earlier in the passage, before the, before the part that Eric uh, read, these people asked Jesus to perform some sort of sign, and they said, hey, uh, they just suggested, we knew, we knew that Moses was legit, we knew he was a real prophet, because our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, this miraculous bread that rained down on the people back in the book of Exodus after they had been rescued from Egypt. Um, and they kind of suggested, what can you show us to show that you're legit, right? And Jesus responds with this, verse 48, A, it's God that rained down manna for your fathers, and B, I am the manna. I am the bread of life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Skipping down a little ways. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And the people, face to face with this, with Jesus' real presence being unveiled in a special kind of way, it says that they grumble. And when it says they grumble, it doesn't just mean they were, um, they were like irritable. Uh, it's a potent biblical phrase. It's actually the same word that was used in our, in our first Corinthians reading. When Paul is talking about why the Israelites fell in the wilderness, he said that they grumbled. Grumbling, it was actually this, uh, this is funny, it's kind of this legal term. It's what you would do if you got an unjust judgment uh, from a judge. You would grumble afterwards at the injustice of what happened. And so when the people grumble, it's that they are, they are setting their own expectations and, and opinions of God and then judging him by those standards. And so they grumble against God. It's having our own expectations of God instead of recognizing him as he is and receiving him. So the crowds in John 6 are face to face with Jesus and are thus invited to a decision. But they do not recognize the presence of Jesus with them, and they don't receive him. They don't recognize him, and we know that because they already had their ideas about God. They have ideas about who God is and what he does, and, it, and Jesus does not fit. So they turn away from that. Okay, what does this have to do with communion? What does this have to do with the table? Well, obviously, as Jesus is talking to them, he's using eating and drinking language, right? And the church down through the centuries has recognized the Lord's Supper here. So John wrote his gospel um, decades after the other gospels. There are churches all over the place that have been meeting week after week and having the Lord's Supper together. And so they would have read John after, after churches are already established and are doing this. And it's hard to read this passage and not hear the Lord's Supper. It's hard to not hear Matthew 26, 26. Jesus took bread and said, take, eat, this is my body. And took a cup saying, drink it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. How is that possible? Well, it's a mystery. And I'll just say, uh, I don't think this is the, the place to start cranking open all the debates about what exactly is going on during communion. Um, I, can give you, I can give you the nice Anglican answer, which is 
Which is why I love Anglicanism. <laughs> I don't know. I can give you a couple of ditches that are helpful to stay out of. For one, what's going on up here can't just be purely symbolic. The Bible just speaks in language that is too real for that. And on the other hand, I just wouldn't get tripped up in, in like metaphysics, like the questions of how exactly does this work? I don't really know. But what I do know is Jesus is really present when we come to the table. There are lots of ways to commune with Jesus. There are habits of prayer and reading scripture and doing those things together and being together in fellowship that make us more aware of his presence week by week, right? But this table is a special place. This is one of two sacraments where God really does a thing. It's the table and it's baptism. And we speak about baptism in very similar ways. God really does something when a person gets baptized. God really does something at this table. It's meeting him. We need this table because this is where we come face to face with the risen Jesus, just like the crowds did in John 6. And that invites a decision from us. Um, I was listening to an interview with Russell Moore earlier this week. Russell Moore, if you're not familiar with him, he's a Southern Baptist who's kind of um, functioned as the carbon monoxide detector a little bit of uh, the Southern Baptist church for a while and just in general has, has worked with um, churches as institutions and all the crazy things that are, that are going on in the church right now. He's a good thinker. Um, and he was talking in this interview, he's a, he's a Baptist, and he was talking about the loss of the altar call. And he said, uh, he said the altar call in a lot of ways represented like the worst of evangelical Christianity. If you're not, if you're not uh, familiar with altar calls, if you didn't grow up in the church, they were like this moment at the end of a church service after the singing and after, uh, after the sermon or lesson where the preacher would invite you to come down to the front and accept Christ or to like go all in in your faith if you've been sort of you know, backsliding or something like that or lukewarm and you could come up to the front if you wanted to and it's kind of this big moment, right? That's, that was an altar call. Um, I experienced it in like city youth group things all the time that I did growing up. Um, went down there a handful of times myself. Um, Russell Moore said uh, the altar call in a lot of ways represented the worst, right? There were manipulative appeals. Um, there was this heightened sense of anxiety that unless I had some big hairy problem in my life that, that God wasn't going to do anything. It wasn't really working in my life. But he said in the 80s, there was this study done about why some churches were growing while other churches, a lot of the traditional kind of mainline denominations were, um, were diminishing. Why was that happening? And the study found out and kind of hypothesized, it's because the churches that grow have found a language for crisis and rebirth of putting off the old and putting on the new, which is basically just talking about what the spirit does, transformational sort of stuff. And so Russell Moore said the altar call uh, also kind of represented the very best of, genu of genuine Christianity. And he said this, it offered a regular pattern of people being reminded that they're sinners in need of grace. He said he would see all the time, all the time you'd see people come up during the altar call and kneel at the front and start praying. And people would come out of the, come out of the crowd and just lay their hands on and pray for that person. And that, and the person didn't say what was going on, and the people didn't need to know what was going on. They just prayed for them. It was just this point of contact. 
He said it's, it was a connection point for the community that was not based on activity and not even on articulation, but something deeper. You know why it's called an altar call? Um, it's because this has traditionally been called the altar. It sits up here. And so the altar call is you're called to the altar up front. What if we viewed coming to this table every week as the altar call? This is a moment of crisis and rebirth that we get to experience week in and week out. This is a moment that's built in to our worship service where we can put off the old and put on the new again. This is a point of connection for our community that's not based on anything we do and not even based on articulating anything, but something deeper that binds us together. And listen, over the course of the summer, we're, gonna, uh, we're, re- we're rebuilding our prayer team. So in the fall, uh, there are going to be people every week that stand out in the foyer that if you need prayer, you can go and have, your, have people lay hands on you and pray for you. And no one in the crowd will know why, and it won't need to be said why. You'll just be cared for and prayed for. There's an altar call every single week. Um, not everyone here is a Christian, and that is okay. You don't have to be a Christian to be here. Really hope this is a place where you can just show up at whatever way you are and whatever uh, questions you might have, all right? Uh, but I would hope that if you come here, you might start over time to sense that something is going on. You might recognize that something is happening and that there might be uh, within you a longing that grows, to commune with the one who has sought after you your entire life and who made you. And if you're a Christian and you eat this meal every week, you are likewise invited to a decision every week. Not in an anxious way, not like a, am I really a Christian or not, and you have to go through that every single week. This meal isn't, it's not a reward for a job well done. This past week, this is medicine for people who are sick. And so if you know you're sort of half in and half out, If you're carrying a burden of shame, this is the place to receive God's grace. This is the place to commune face-to-face with Jesus. No matter what you have done, no matter how you have failed this week, no matter how much you've forgotten him, Jesus draws you with the words of life and feeds you with his own flesh and blood. Let your soul that is starved by shame or starved by guilt or is filled with sorrow, or is empty, be filled with the only food and drink that will satisfy. Let Jesus serve you at this table each week and let him fill you again. We might imagine that, uh, that as we set this table every week, this is, this is Jesus setting the scene for John six, of John 6 for us over and over again. And I don't know where you are in that scene. Maybe you're just a part of the crowd. Someone has invited you here uh, to come listen to this strange teacher. You're just in the crowd to see. Um, maybe you've heard and seen some of him already and you're, you're finding yourself starting to hunger for more. Maybe you've already decided you're gonna follow him and you're a disciple. So you're just here with your master. Wherever you are, I want you to see Jesus turn and look directly at you and say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And you're invited to respond. And might I suggest that you might feel led to respond with Peter at the end of this passage. Lord, to whom else would we go? At this table, we encounter the real presence of Jesus. And first, that shows us we're invited to a decision. And second, 
Second, that's my last point. Encountering the real presence of Jesus at the table, time and time again, will shape what we love for our own good. Coming to this table will start over time to shape what we love for our own good. And this is what I mean. If a real communing love with Jesus falls by the wayside, then other loves, other cravings are going to start to come in to our own detriment. Your heart can't not love. It can't not commune. The question is, what will it commune with? What will it love? And will it be good for you? And will it be good for your community and for your neighbors? Or will it be detrimental? This is why Paul is so worked up in his letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10. You can flip over there if you'd like. We're going to look at it for just a second. Um, Really quick context to this letter. The church in Corinth uh, is made up of very new Christians. A lot of them um, Gentiles, mostly Gentiles. A lot of them former pagans. Um, Apparently what they had been doing was coming and partaking of the Lord's Supper and then going to participate in uh, pagan ritual sacrificial meals. Probably a social move in Corinth, uh, just a normal kind of thing to do. Um, and it's kind of hard for us to imagine, like, coming and taking the Lord's Supper and then going to, like, a, like a bloody pagan sacrifice right after that. But that was the thing to do. Um, and Paul's really pushing them hard about that. Really confronting them, like, over the course of three or four chapters in, in Corinthians, if you go back and read. And how does he do it? How does he confront them? He uses the table. These are some of the punchiest, richest statements about communion in the entire Bible. And basically, Paul's argument is this. Israel, back in the day, got baptized, and they took communion. They got baptized in the Red Sea, and they drank from the spiritual uh, food and drink. And yet, their hearts were elsewhere, and God was not pleased with them, and it was to their detriment. Right? And so he draws the parallel. He's like, we do the same thing. Right? Verse 3 and 4, Paul talks about uh, spiritual food and drink, just like Israel's manna and miraculous water, which sustained them in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. So we eat uh, bread and wine to sustain us in our wilderness journey on the way to the promised land. Or even more boldly, if you look in verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The argument Paul is making is that the Corinthians' failure to recognize Jesus' real presence at this table opens the door to idolatry. See, pure theoretical head knowledge will not shape what you love. Knowledge is great, but only if it's driven by love. If you don't encounter him, then anything and everything else will start to take that place and will start to capture your heart. Israel failed to recognize that it was God present with them in the wilderness. And so Egypt clung to their hearts. And Paul says they became idolaters. They practiced sexual immorality. They put Christ to the test. They grumbled. There's that word again. They judged God. And so they were scattered in the wilderness. Paul is trying to get them to recognize the real presence of Jesus with them so they will have their hearts shaped in love for him, for their own good. And not only that, not only will this table shape our hearts in love for God, but it will shape our hearts to love each other. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 is so key. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So you and I are fed from the same source. 
and we become one with him, which means that we are one. At this table, our hearts learn to love each other. Your beloved is my beloved. Your savior is my savior. The eyes of love that gaze on you gaze on me and gaze on your brother and sister that you're sitting next to. That makes us one. If that's true, and we experience that week after week, then it's got to be true throughout the rest of the week. It ought to permeate the rest of our lives, right? And this isn't all that deep or complicated. We can practice it while we're all together here every single week. Talk to someone you don't know. Invite someone to lunch, right? This is something this uh, community and incarnation has been so good at over the years. And as we've moved into a new building that's bigger, and we've seen a lot of new faces come in and a lot of faces leave and things are changing and we went through COVID and everyone had a mask on and it's confusing, right? We've got an opportunity to live out what's true here again and to love one another and to be one with one another again and to be warm and hospitable and and know each other and be there for each other. Let's make the feel of this place reflect what is most true, that we are one. We partake of one bread and we are one with each other. Encountering the real presence of Jesus at this table and invites a decision, right? And it shapes our hearts in love for our own good. Um, A last thing, last thing I'm gonna say. Uh, Some of you may be feeling anxious as you hear all of this, that this has to be a big moment every week, right? And that's a lot of pressure because this goes quick. It's a couple of minutes long. It's a couple of songs. It's a small piece of bread and a little sip of wine, right? Um, it might be easy to miss this. Um, you might be chasing a kid around and that kid just took off his shoe and hit the guy in front of you and you don't know that guy. <laughs> Something that's never happened to me and I don't understand. Um, you may be experiencing a, like a spiritual trough right now. You may just be dried up. You may have no energy for spiritual things. That's a normal thing that happens over the course of the Christian life in the normal ebb and flow again and again and again, all right? You might experience incredible joy at this table one week and the next week it doesn't happen and you get really disappointed and frustrated. You start wondering what you did wrong. Listen, there are ways to prepare for this during the week, of course, being in prayer, meditating on scripture, being with each other, fellowshipping with each other. That's a great way to prepare for this table, but it's a couple of minutes. And emotions come and go like crazy. They're very subjective, right? If that's you, if you're anxious at all, that this has, you have to like capture this somehow, let me just say to you, you can rest in Jesus. The great thing about this is it is objective. I love that God gives us these physical things. As real as that bread is real, as real as that wine is real, that is the reality and the concreteness of Jesus' love for you, that he, that he died for you, that his body broke on the cross and that his blood was shed for you. That's how real and objective it is, right? It doesn't matter what you're feeling. That bread is real. The wine is real. Jesus' love for you is real. It's as objective as showing up to the warmest family dinner you can imagine. At the best family dinners, you can come exactly as you are. You don't have to put on a show. You come as you are, and you can collapse into the warmth and hospitality of that place and be filled up again. At the best family dinner, you're never alone, never by yourself. If your faith is weak, let the brother and sister next to you have faith for you. Let them carry you. If you want to reignite the joy of this table again, I would suggest recognize your brother and sister 
as you come up here and eat this. Don't be, you know, Westerners like we are and over-individualize it. We're coming together as a body to feast on this together. Come to the feast. Encounter Jesus. Let him serve him. Let him serve you. Let him feed you. Let's pray.